God's word. Today's text is 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it is not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and we praise you once again that we can hear your word with such great freedom. I ask that you would open our ears, open our eyes to hear what you are speaking to each each of us personally today through your word and through Kyle's message. In Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you so much. It's so good to see everyone this morning. God bless you. Um, I hope that you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving um, with your uh, friends and families, that you got to see people that you love. Maybe you got to see people that you don't love. Um, but um, I, I know we had a great time, um, my, my family and I, getting to see our, our, my in-laws and different family members. It's always a wonderful time to to spend with people that you care about. Hope that you had a great time. And don't forget, after church today, um, I think some of our leftovers are in that back room. So um, come enjoy some lunch with us. I hope that you can stay, stick around, talk with each other, and just enjoy each other's company. I wanted to let you know, too, um, we have these little um, invites to our Advent services. I really want to encourage you all to really consider someone that you know, a friend, a family member, maybe a couple of people that you can bring with you um, to one of these services. I I really want to especially emphasize our Christmas Eve service as um, generally, even in our culture still to this day, people are prone uh, to going to church on Christmas Eve that don't normally go to church. We're having a four o'clock service um, because we recognize that most people have the day off on Christmas Eve, um, and if they don't, they're usually getting out around noon, right? So having an earlier service will enable people to still go to their parties at night and not have to get there at 9 o'clock, right? So I really want to encourage you, take one of these. Dave's got them in the back. Um, perhaps you can't go to the Christmas Eve service. We all have different schedules, right, where some of us might be traveling. But maybe you can, um, on one of the Advent Sundays, um, bring someone that you care about and love. Um, we're really going to try to emphasize the gospel for the next four weeks. So Advent is um, pretty much every Sunday until Christmas Eve. You know, so it's going to be a lot of fun. We have special services, singing, um, Christmas carols, things like that. It's going to be real, a real great time. And all the information is, information is on this little slip of paper here. So on your way out, please grab a few and think of, write some names down um, in, on your notebook uh, just, or in your heart. Just start thinking and praying about it because, honestly, um, we're a new church. And generally on Christmas Eve, um, if people go to church, they go to churches that aren't new. They go to grandma's church or, you know, the church down the road with the steeple, right? So the way that we're going to get people to come and hear the gospel for the first time, um, it, it's different than our trunk or treats. They're not going to come here unless you invite them. You, you, we have to ask people to come to church with us or they're not going to pick this one. This is the weird cult church that meets in the, 
in the, um, right, the storage facility in Warren. What is this place all about? They're not going to come here. This is not their choice. Okay, so that means that you have to <clears throat> untie um, whatever misconceptions that people might have about our church here. Okay, and also um, to invite them so that they can hear the gospel for the first time. We want people to know the love of Jesus, the extravagant message of the gospel that saves. Amen? So please take this seriously. This is an amazing time and opportunity to get people to come and hear the gospel. Okay? So take these. Dave's, Dave is going to have them. Um, he's in the back under the clock keeping the time um, back there. So, um, so yeah, and welcome back to them too. I know some of you are away. Thanks for um, being here this morning. But yeah, so make sure that you grab some of these on the way out. We're continuing this morning our, our message um, from 1 Peter chapter 1. And 1 Peter is a letter in the New Testament uh, written by the Apostle Peter. And he's writing to Christians who are going through suffering um, for their faith, um, grieving loss, going through persecution. And we wanted to um, um, approach this letter to basically answer the same question for us. How do we deal with trial as Christians? Maybe you're not a Christian. What can equip you to handle the disappointments of life? Um, and that's basically why, why we're in this. Now, we're obviously going to be taking about a month break from First Peter because we're going into Advent. But once Advent's over, we're going to dive right back into it, okay, just so that you know. You know, there are many heroes in Western culture. And I, know, I think, you know, today's modern world, if you're talking to young people, heroes are people like Superman or Spider-Man or Ant-Man, things like this. But in Western culture, West, Western civilization, there are certain icons that we have. Uh, you, know, you might think of like George Washington. <clears throat> we can go even farther back than that and include uh, maybe Alexander the Great or Julius Caesar, maybe the great philosopher Immanuel Kant. So politicians, generals, um, religious leaders, uh, d different people like this really were influential in shaping what we know today as Western civilization or Western culture. There are two heroes, though, in Western culture that are often compared uh, to each other. And not only are they compared to each other, they're considered perhaps the most exemplary, exemplary people in human history. <clears throat> they both lived over 2,000 years ago. Now, I can guess that you're guessing one of them already. Okay? They both lived over 2,000 years ago. They both avoided secular power. They both were considered to be corrupting the youth of society. <clears throat> both were brought to trial for this reason, and both ultimately were executed for their corrupting influence, quote-unquote. And they both, by the way, had promo very famous promoters of their message. One was St. Paul, and the other was Plato. <clears throat> and you might be guessing by now that these two figures that I'm referring to are Socrates and Jesus Christ often compared to each other um, for their sacrifice and their exemplary, exemplary character. Uh, Socrates, from him, if you don't know, uh, came his disciple Plato. Not the, the mold that you form with your children. Um, from Socrates came Plato, and after Plato, if you recall, came Aristotle. And Aristotle was the mentor <clears throat> to Alexander the Great. Not many people know that. Um, and from this line of philosophers and political leaders, and even generals, came the form of government and freedom that we enjoy today, our democracy uh, in our republic. Okay? From Jesus came the Apostle Paul and the church. Um, from, from these came the virtues of Western civilization. 
the, the, the governed, which are you and I, enjoy a certain Judeo-Christian ethic. And the reason that is is because of Jesus, Paul, and his disciples. Why did Socrates, the reason I'm bringing this up is to ask the question, why did Socrates and why did Jesus die? Many people have claimed that Socrates and Jesus died for the same reason. And it was very simple, simply to be an example to people. They died for the sake of example. They died for the sake of principle. These were leading other people to live how they lived. And in their deaths, they demonstrated that truth is always more important than the status quo and even life itself. Okay? So this is the claim. The Bible even seems to affirm that Jesus' death was an example to us in Philippians chapter 2. In your relationships with one another, have the same mind that Jesus had, who humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. See, be like Jesus, in other words, who died sacrificially. See, scripture even says that Jesus' death, in a sense, is an example. It is exemplary to the way that we should live our lives. Guess who said this? This bringer of glad tidings died as he lived, as he taught, to demonstrate how one ought to live. What he bequeathed to mankind is his practice, his bearing before the judges, before the guards, before the accusers, his bearing on the cross. He does not defend his rights. He takes no steps to avert the worst that can happen to him. And he entreats, he suffers, he loves with those, in those who are doing evil to him. Not to defend himself, not to grow angry, not to make others responsible, not to resist even the evil man, but to love him. Such kind words, delicate words, words of respect, come from what you might think is a Christian poet or a Christian scholar or maybe even a pastor, but these words came from the infamous atheist who said, God is dead, um, Frederick Nietzsche. <clears throat> Tremendous respect on a certain level for Jesus Christ. But what Nietzsche also claimed, as many do, is that Jesus died only as an example and not as a redeemer. You see, he died, as, according to Nietzsche and others, as an example to follow and not as a savior of our sin. You see the big difference here. Why did Jesus die on the cross? It was much different, I think, than why, why Aristotle died on the cross. <clears throat> or Socrates, excuse me. Our text answers this. For you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The blood of Christ being a symbol for his death and resurrection. So this morning, I, I want to pan out a bit on our passage and talk about redemption, the blood of Christ. Why did Christ die? What did it accomplish? This is very important to understand the need that we have and also our power for living. So I want to look at the cause, the need, and the work of the death of Christ. <clears throat> the cause, the need, 
and the work of the death of Christ. Now, before we jump into this, in the cause, before we discuss the cause of the death of Christ, we need to define an, an important word that you might have heard if you've been a Christian for a while. If you haven't, and you've probably still heard this word, it's called atonement. We need to understand what this word means theologically and biblically if we're going to be able to kind of follow this logic of why Christ died. The term atonement is the word used by Christians to describe why Jesus came as the Son of God, lived and taught and died and resurrected. He died, according to Christians and according to Scripture, to be an atonement for sin, to make an atonement. For the Christian, and indeed the message of all the Bible, Jesus died to atone. But what does that mean? What, is, what does that refer to? It refers to all the work Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection to earn the salvation of his people. So the atonement of Christ is the saving work of Christ. And we'll get to what that means in a moment. Why do we need to be saved? We'll see that in a moment. But for now, we'll just say that the atoning work of Christ, what happened at the cross, was an atonement. It was a saving work. Now, this, of course, is different than a simple example. Now, he did die as an example, but he died for more than just simply being an example. It claims that Jesus didn't only die as an example, but that his example must follow the first principle, which is atonement. His death was to make lost sinners one at one, atone at one with God. You see? So let's look at this. Let's look at the cause why did God in eternity past decide to save sinners from their sin? If it's true, as the Bible claims, <clears throat> that Jesus existed as God in eternity past, we learn this in John chapter 1, that when Jesus was born, he pre-existed that birth. He was God in eternity past who became flesh. The Son of God became flesh. And if it's true that this happened and he became a man and he became a man for the purpose of dying in the place of sinners, what would ultimately motivate him and God the Father to do this? And our text begins to answer the question. It says, God judges each person's work impartially. You see, it's wrapped up in the nature of who God is. God is both love and justice. He's both perfectly at the same time. He's not one or the other. He's both. So it was the love of God that caused the plan of redemption for Christ. The love of God motivated this atoning work. And we see this very clearly in John chapter 3. Everyone knows this verse. People have it written at their bellies, on their bellies at football games, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So the death of Christ was motivated by the love of Christ. God is love. And because God is love, it was with his love that he sent his son to save us. Amen? His love did not let us remain in our own sin. But God is not only love. God is also justice. God is just. God is altogether righteous all the time. The justice of God required not, not sin to simply be ignored or overlooked, but actually dealt with, 
actually paid for. You see, God did not just say, well, I love sinners, so it just doesn't matter what you've done, so come on in. This is not what God does. It's not what he requires. God is a just God, and sin had to justly be dealt with. Okay? Romans chapter 3 reads this. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of blood to be, to be received by faith. He did this. Why did he do this? To demonstrate his righteousness. God does not just simply forgive sin. He pays for it. If you owe $100, it is not simply overlooked. That $100 is actually paid for, but by a substitute, by another. You see? <clears throat> so God is our just God who satisfies the ju- his own justice by the death of Jesus Christ. You see, the death we deserved to die, someone else died for us. Amen? In the Old Testament, um, priests of Israel were to enter a place called the Holy of Holies. Did you know this? So in the Old Testament, God tells Moses, the guy who parts the Red Sea, he says, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with the people. Right? God wants to show up and have relationship with us. We're estranged with him because of sin. That's death. We're separated, but God says, I want to show up. I want relationship with you again. That's why I created you. So here's what you're going to do, Moses. You're going to build a tabernacle, and that's kind of like a tent, a big tent. The temple in the Old Testament was a permanent structure made of bricks, right? But before they made that, it was before they built that, it was a tent. And they said, inside this tent, I want you to put another little tent. And inside that little tent... I want you to put something called the Ark of the Covenant, right? That's where God shows up. That's the presence of God. And he tells Moses that if you're going to enter into my presence, you need to present a sacrifice onto the Ark. As a matter of fact, it would be onto the Ark's lid called the mercy seat, right? The lid of the Ark there was something called the mercy seat, and that's where the presence of God would rest. Now, this is all symbolic, so you have to try to follow the symbolism here. But in the Old Testament, God's presence rested on the mercy seat. So when the priest would come in to atone for the people's sins through the blood of a sacrifice, God would be righteous in receiving that sacrifice as an atonement for that sin. His anger would be satisfied. You see what I mean? On top of the ark, here is this lid called the mercy seat. This is in Leviticus chapter 16, by the way, in the Old Testament. It's the place where the sacrifice for sin was presented, the blood of bulls and goats, and God's anger and his justice were satisfied towards sin. The priest would represent the sinful people of Israel and with the blood of the, um, the, the sacrifice. The word for atonement in Romans is mercy seat. It's referring to that place where God's justice is satisfied by the work of a sacrifice. You see? Theologically, there's another word called propitiation. Right? He is the propitiation for our sin. It means basically this. It's very simple. God's justice is satisfied through the sacrifice, and it makes him favorably disposed to guilty people. You see, people who should have been the object of God's anger 
are now the object of God's kindness because the, at the mercy seat, at the place of atonement, his anger was satisfied on, a, on another sacrifice. You see? This is the symbolism that's happening in the Old Testament. In Romans, let's read it again, okay? God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood. So God shows up in his own presence with the blood of Christ and our sins are atoned. We become the favorable object of God's love. Isn't that fantastic? God the Father presents the blood of Jesus to satisfy his justice and here sinners find mercy. You see, because God is not just love. This is bloody, isn't it? We deserved death. God put death on his son and we get life. Isn't that fantastic? And the reason this happens, the reason it's such a mess is because God is just and God is love. You see, friends, the reason Christ died on the cross was because of these twin virtues of our good God, his love and his justice. Romans 3.26, For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That means he is absolutely just and right in saving us. It is not an injustice for him to forgive you because the penalty was put on someone else. It's been paid for. Amen? The next thing we got to ask is, very simply, was the death of Christ necessary to save sinners? Was there really a need for all this? We might ask it like this. Was there any other way for humanity's sins to be atoned for, for us to be made right with God? Was there any other way for this to be accomplished? And you know that Jesus kind of prayed the same thing before he died on the cross. He said, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Is there any other way that humanity can be made right with their God? Is there any other way? I want to look at this question from two different angles. The first angle is, let's ask it like this. Is anyone exempt from the need of atonement to begin with? In other words, are there any people in this world that has ever lived now or in the past or in the future who are not guilty of sin and therefore don't need to be made one with God because they were always one with God? You see? You see what I mean? The simple and the quick answer to this question lies in Romans chapter 3 when it says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The wages of sin in Romans 6 is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. If all have sinned, then the wages of that sin is death. So we all are, in a sense, pardon the pun, walking dead. Right? That's all of us. We're separated. The, the, the death is a, is a figure. It's an image for an estranged relationship with our good God, our Heavenly Father. It's cut off. It's death. It's separation estrangement from God's love, his union, and favor. That means that no one, without exception, is exempt from the need to have their sins atoned for. Friends, you must 
be forgiven to enter into the presence of your good God. Your sins must be atoned for. They must be paid for. So here's the other angle. Are there other kinds of atonements that God will accept? Right? Maybe there's something else that can die for me. Maybe I can die for myself. Maybe reforming my life and being good. Maybe that will satisfy God's displeasure toward my sin. Maybe this is what I do. Maybe some kind of monetary or religious devotion. Maybe that will make it right. You see, we're all kind of looking for something to make it right. You say, I don't believe in God, I don't believe in any of this stuff. But friends, you know something's wrong with you and something out there, right? Something has interrupted what should have been a happy, productive, and peaceful. You're disconnected. You know that. What I'm saying is, according to Scripture, this, this you might not know. What you are disconnected from is your maker. That's the disconnection that you feel. That's what's missing. And what I'm suggesting to you this morning is that the reason for that is because we've rejected him. We've turned from him. We haven't worshipped him as God. And what we need to do is we need to be made right with God. And that is what the atoning work of Christ would, will provide for you this morning if you simply would turn to him and trust him and believe in him. Romans, again, chapter 3. God presented Christ a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, his patience, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. What this basically is saying is that we are made right with God. Our sins are forgiven. His anger is satisfied when we put faith alone in Jesus Christ and what he did for us. The one who is atoned, the one who is looked with favor on, the sacrifice that satisfies this is only the blood of Jesus Christ and faith in that work. Hebrews chapter 2 and chapter 9 add to this. It says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin, and it, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. That means that Jesus Christ is the only sacrifice that actually can reconcile you with God. So he becomes Jesus. He becomes the priest. He becomes the one that enters into that holy place where the Ark of the Covenant is and where we find mercy because he presents his own body, his sacrifice, his blood. And what did our text say about it? That it, does, it is not perishable like silver or gold, but the precious blood of Christ is our redemption. That's why Peter, if you recall in Acts, the Apostle Peter, didn't he say this? There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. You can't do it yourself, and neither can I. And isn't that good news? We kind of know that already, right? Oh, come to Christ, the Redeemer, and find forgiveness, find atonement. Romans 1.17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, 
the just shall live by faith alone. Faith in the death of Christ. Galatians chapter 3. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is justified before God by the law. That means that if you are guilty, if you are a sinner before God, you cannot be made right by cleaning your nose, by starting to be good. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. But the just shall live by faith alone. Faith in the death and resurrection of Christ, that his death satisfies what, what we owe God. See? Without the atoning work of Christ satisfying the justice of God, we remain separate from his kind presence. So it's the blood of Jesus that is more precious than silver and gold that is absolutely necessary to save us. The death and resurrection. You see, Christ died as an atonement, a sacrificial death for us in our place. You see, that's the need. We need a savior. We need a rescuer, and that rescuer is Christ. So let's look, number three, at the work itself. <clears throat> because of the curse of sin, all humankind bears four consequences. Because of the curse of sin, all humankind carries four con consequences without exception. Number one, we deserve death as the penalty of sin. We already saw that in Romans chapter 3. Number two, we deserve to be the objects of God's anger towards sin. Number three, we are separated from God. Our relationship with him is estranged. And number four, we are in bondage, in slavery to sin and to Satan. Okay? This is the message of Scripture. Number one, we deserve death as the penalty of sin. Number two, we deserve to be the objects of God's anger. Number three, we are separated from God. And number four, we are in bondage to sin. Friends, I know that this is harsh. I know this is not what we're used to hearing. But this is the reality of our condition without Jesus Christ. And again, I would just remind you that we can, we can kind of kick against this. But isn't it true? Just, don't we just know in our guts that something's wrong, that it's partly our fault, and it needs to get fixed. And who's there to fix it for us? Because we can't fix it ourselves. We just sort of know that. So we need to look at this. If these are the four curses of sin in our lives, that we deserve death, that we are the objects of God's anger, that we are separated from God, and that we are in bondage to sin. You see, I think our modern minds sort of object to this. It, makes God seem angry. It makes him seem unkind. Why would God be like this? But I want you to think about it like this, okay? In, in, a, in the real world of pain and suffering and evil and atrocity, how can we serve a God who simply gives a blind eye to wickedness around us? We just know, we just sort of know that, that if there is a God, he's got to be just, because if he's not just, then all of this is pointless. All of the evil around us, we get away with it. You see what I mean? We, we don't want a God like that. None of us do. You see, we, we also don't want a God who's only just just. Because then we all know we're in big trouble. 
If he's just just, we're in big trouble. If he's just love and he doesn't hold anyone accountable, then evil reigns, right? You see, what God, what, 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 what we really want, even before looking at the Bible, is a God who is just and a God who is love, both at the same time and both perfectly. And let me introduce you to the God of Scripture, because that's who he is. That's what he is. But that comes with some bad news. You and I are in trouble. You and I, on our own, are separated from him. He is angry with us. We are in bondage to sin, and there's nothing that we can do about it except Christ, except the deliverer, except the hero, the rescuer who can do something about it and has done something about it, and all you need to do is simply look to him, trust in him, and he'll save you. He'll take you out of slavery. Let's look at what he does for us. Number one, he is our sacrifice. Okay? The Bible describes the death of Jesus as sacrificial. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Oh, but he has appeared once for all, at the culmination of the ages, to do away with all of it, everything, everything that you're ashamed of, everything that you still, with, still live with, he does away with it by the sacrifice of himself, by the death of Christ at the cross. You know that the, de the dictionary definition of sacrifice is an act of slaughtering an animal or person or surrendering a possession as an offering to God. It's bloody. It's messy. It seems unnecessary. But friends, if the wages of sin is death, our death, then only the death of someone innocent can save us. Another sacrifice stepping in for us. And that is what we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. That is Christ's death in all its saving aspects is the sacrifice, life for life. You know, this is uh, made an example for us in the Old Testament. It seems like such a bizarre story, if you remember this story in the Old Testament with Abraham. It's in Genesis chapter 22. Do you remember that Abraham was told that through his seed, a redeemer would come, a savior. And his wife was barren and he was old. They were both old. But God miraculously gives them a son. His name is Isaac, right? Isaac. And God tells Abraham to do something so bewildering and so seemingly wicked. Why would God ask Abraham to do something wicked like this? He asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac on an altar. So Abraham believes God and says, okay, son, come with me. We're going for a walk. We're going up a hill. And this is what it says in Genesis chapter 22. The fire, this is Isaac. The fire and wood are here, Isaac says, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He doesn't know yet what's going on. Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. You see the prophetic nature of this? You see, he knows Isaac's about to die. And he also knows that God is going to bring a substitute so that Isaac wouldn't have to die. You see? God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. When they reached the place, 
he bound his son Isaac, he laid him on the altar on top of the wood, then he reached out his hand, he took the knife to slay his son, but the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, it said, here I am, he replied, do not lay a hand on the boy. Abraham looked up, and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. You see what's going on here, friends? Can you, can you imagine this? I want you to picture all of us being Isaac together. right? We're on top of this altar. We deserve death and separation from God. And that is the pronouncement. That's the curse on us. That's the offering. But God himself will provide a lamb for the burnt offering. He will provide a lamb. Just in the nick of time, God sends a substitute. And friends, just in the nick of time for you and I, God sends a substitute for us. Isn't that fantastic? Jesus is that ram in the thickets. Jesus is the one whose blood satisfies the anger of God for us in our place just in the nick of time. And because of that, number two, I mentioned this word already, Jesus' blood, the the sacrifice of God, is a propitiation. It's a propitiation. That's a nice, heavy word for you to impress your friends with. It's also called expiation, another word for propitiation. And basically what this means, when you read about this in the Bible, it's the act of making amends for guilt or wrongdoing. It's the act of making amends for guilt or wrongdoing and now having being the object of someone's favorable disposition. First, first John chapter 4. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a propitiation for us. Some translations say it like this, that he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us. He's the mercy seat. He is the place where God's justice is satisfied, you see? And we become the objects of God's favor and not the objects of God's anger. Isn't that fantastic? Jesus Christ, the blood of Christ, is the propitiation for our sins. It makes us one with God again. And that leads us to number two. The work of Christ was a reconciliation. Because it was a sacrifice, because it was a propitiation, it was, number three, a reconciliation. The death of Jesus brings lost and estranged people back into fellowship with the God that they were created to love. And it says this in 2 Corinthians. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Those who were once God's enemies have been reconciled and they are now God's friends. And why? Because Christ became the enemy. Christ became the object of justice. And that object reconciled us to God. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Jesus, in Jesus' death. You see, the death of Christ was a reconciliation, and he was not counting people's sins against them. Oh, friends, if I could put on a screen for you this morning all the things that I know that I've done that I'm ashamed of, it's 
a miracle of God's grace that those things are not counted against me. And oh, can you just imagine for a moment with me your own lives and picture all the things that you might be ashamed of that it might not be accounted against you either because it's put on Christ. Though we're estranged and separate from God, the blood of Jesus reconciles us with God because that blood satisfies God's justice. And finally, in Christ's death, redemption was accomplished. Redemption. See, I hope that you see what, what, what's happening here. See, each of those four things that we mentioned before, where are they? We deserve death as the penalty of sin while well, he was the sacrifice. We deserve to be the objects of God's anger while well, that anger is satisfied in his propitiation. We are separated from God because of sin. Well, the death of Christ is a reconciliation between us and God. Well, we're in bondage to sin too. That's the message of Romans chapter 6 and many other places. Well, the blood of Jesus Christ is a redemption. If we are slaves to sin, then what's the ransom price? What buys us out of it? And that is the blood of Christ as well. The Bible describes mankind as in bondage to sin and to Satan. And Romans chapter 6 says this, But thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. Though you were slaves to sin, there was a ransom price paid for you. The death of Jesus, the blood of Christ, that's the price that paid for our liberty, our deliverance. The bondage is gone. Oh, you say, I, I feel like it's there still, but that's just a feeling, friend, because before God, it is gone. You are made right with him. The price has been paid. You're delivered. It's done. It's finished. Amen? And all of this presumes something of the death of Jesus that we've been hinting at all along. And basically, that is his substitution. Some call it his penal substitution. I titled the, the sermon this morning, In Our Place, because Christ did all of this for us in our place as our substitute. Penal substitution. Penal in that Christ bore a penalty when he died. Substitute in that the penalty was not his own, but someone else's, ours. Some people have described this the death of Christ, as the vicarious death of Christ. The vicarious, the vicar, right? A vicar is someone who stands in the place of another. That's all it means. The vicarious death of Christ means that he stood in our place. The penalty he paid was for someone else. Amen? Jesus Christ is our substitute. What was supposed to be put on us was put on him. And we get all his glory and all his righteousness and all his love and everything that is the product of the death of Jesus. I want to illustrate this by a short video that I, I really thought illustrated well the idea of a substitute. If you could play that now. Grace Athena High School in Rochester, New York, has a new, most unlikely hero, a special ed student by the name of Jason McElwain. Let's keep it going. Jason is the basketball team manager. 
For the past couple years, he's been assisting coach Jim Johnson, helping with whatever the team needs. Get him motivated and uh, hand out water and just be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, to say the least. Despite being born with autism, Jason's father says his son has never had a problem expressing himself at basketball games. You know, I was always concerned that he might get a technical and they lose a game because he, you know, start yelling or whatever. Let's have a hard practice tomorrow, all hour and a half, and let's get ready for Arcadia. Okay. Let's go. One, two, three, two. Because he has been so devoted to the team, for the last game of the season, Coach Johnson decided to let Jason actually suit up. Not to play necessarily, just to let him feel what it's like to wear a jersey. At least that was the plan. But with four minutes to go in last week's game, Coach Johnson stood up and pointed to number 52, Jason McElwain. After years of fetching water and toweling off other people's sweat, Jason was actually in a game. His first shot was a 20-footer from the right baseline. Was it close? Did you almost make I missed. it? I just airballed it. <laughs> I'm like, just, dear God, please, let's just get him a basket. His second shot missed, too, but the third was a chunker. A three-point no-doubter. And Jason wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. If I wasn't there to witness it, I wouldn't have believed it, you know? You caught fire. I just caught fire. I was hot as a pistol. Jason ended up shooting six three-pointers. One right after the other. He had 20 points total. And each time a shot went in, his teammates and the crowd went a little crazier. His last basket, right at the buzzer, created total mayhem. Because he is autistic, Jason says he's used to feeling different. But never this different. Never this wonderful. Friends, um, Jason spent years toweling off sweat and blood, fetching water and Gatorade and doing all these things for his team. And they never thought once, it never occurred to them to put him in the game, to let him do the work. And when they did it, you see what happened. You see, friends, can I invite you this morning to put down the towel, to put down the ball, to give it to Christ, to let him stand in your place. Oh, because he's got a lot of no-doubters. He's got a lot of game in him. He can do it for you. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you so much, Lord, 